0: Well, good morning. My name is Benjamin Verbicek, and Pastor Chris has become a friend of mine and an encourager. Uh, We've never met in person. You've never invited me there all the way to Australia, Um, although that would be wonderful. But I'm not sure that we'll meet in person, Uh, maybe someday. Um, But regardless, I'm I'm thankful to you, Chris. Um, I'm thankful to you, church, for sharing your pastor. Um, with a sinner like me, and not only just me, but the larger Christian community through Chris's writing ministry. When you were all experiencing the wildfires um, last year, Chris wrote a piece called, When All That Remains is Ash, Lessons of God in the Australian Forest Fires. And I read a few lines from that article in our church on a Sunday morning, Prior to participating in communion together, because of themes that Chris teased out in that article and the way they highlighted the gospel in such a helpful, beautiful way. So I appreciate um, you and Chris. And I'm preaching to you here from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We're on the east side, not necessarily the east coast, but the east side of America. We're two hours south of New York, maybe two hours south. Uh, Excuse me, we're two hours um, south of New York and two hours north of D.C. But maybe more interesting is that we're 20 minutes or so from Hershey, Pennsylvania, where they make their famous chocolate. Um, this is our church building where I, one of the pastors, uh, along with several others, um, you can't see the congregation that normally sits out here. Um, and honestly, there's hardly anyone here. We have Carolyn and Ben uh, who are going to listen to this sermon Um, as I preach it. But I assume our church uh, and our people are a lot like you. People trying to trust in and cling to the goodness of God in a broken world. I want to bring us into the letter we call Romans, a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in a city called Rome. We can't see that audience either. But I assume they are a lot like us, or were a lot like us. People trying to trust in and cling to the goodness of God in a broken world. I've been listening to your series through Jude, and Pastor Chris noticed noted uh, that Netflix allows you to push that button <laughs> that says skip intro, and which we almost always do, right? You're watching Netflix, you're going to skip that intro. You've seen the show before, don't need to watch the intro again. But Chris pointed out rightly that we ought not to do this skipping of intros with God's word as he was preaching through that short letter we call Jude. And because even the introductions in the Bible are inspired by God and full of grace and truth. And I agree with you, Chris, Uh, but I ask for your forgiveness if we go ahead and jump to chapter 8. We'll never get there if we cover the first seven chapters. So if you have a Bible, you can follow along with me. Otherwise, we're going to try and overlay it on the screen here. But I'm going to be reading from Romans chapter 8 verses 12 through 17 and then I'll pray and ask that God would be our teacher Romans chapter 8 12 through 17 the apostle Paul writes so then brothers we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh for if you live according to the flesh you will die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live And fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him. In order that we may also. Be glorified with him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. Invite you to pray with me. Now whether you're there watching by yourself. Or with a room full of people. If you would bow your heads. We'll pray. Heavenly Father. The the clouds. uh, Metaphorically hang dark over this last year. And I pray that even for a moment of just watching this sermon and absorbing your truth and your scripture, that you would blow them away and we would see ourselves as we truly are in light of the gospel, as dearly loved. I pray that you would help us to Live in that reality and also walk as your children. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. This last year has been a doozy. Uh, For me, the difficulties began long before the pandemic and lockdown. So last summer, so for us in July of last year, not this just a few months ago, but 14, 15 months ago, my co-senior pastor, a friend named Jason, uh, moved on to another church. He left well, but that left a gap in ministry here. And um, a few dozen people at that same time began attending, attending our church out of nowhere, which was a great encouragement. I suppose you'd rather have a dozen, a few dozen people start attending your church than leave your church, at least Uh, if you're the new senior pastor. So that was nice, but they often, uh, or at least many of them felt like they wanted to join a small group, and we didn't have groups or leaders for them, uh, although we wanted to try and figure that out. And so Ben, who's back there, we scrambled trying to figure that out. And then our church launched a, a pastoral search team to look for a new associate pastor, which took time away from regular ministry, ministry or time I didn't feel like I had, but made time for to go to those meetings and read the resumes and look at packets from candidates. Additionally, after the other pastor, my friend Jason, left, just over a very short period of about two months, I officiated five weddings, which was would have been a lot sort of across a whole year, but it was certainly a lot over two months. During that same time, I was It was the culmination of my ordination process in my denomination that I'm a part of. Our church is a part of the Evangelical Free Church of America, the EFCA, which might not mean much to you there in Australia. But the ordination process culminates in a 40-page theological paper and a four-hour oral exam. On top of all of that, I had a massive surgery on my right shoulder. I had a long injury or a long, <laughs> an injury from a long time ago that was made much worse through church softball, and they repaired that. But it left me in a sling um, for six weeks straight, morning, noon, and night, and then sleeping in a recliner for several months, which was not enjoyable. So that happened from July to November. And then Around the Christmas season, I'll say a handful of people left our church, some of them not so gracefully. (laughs) And so it was a doozy of a year long before the pandemic hit. Someone from my former church, years ago when I was at this church, I still follow, we're on friends on Facebook, and I noticed they had shared on Facebook somewhere during the lockdown, at least here in America, which was largely from March to May. And they shared this picture um, of a hornet's nest, and the caption read, if 2020 was a pinata. And if you've watched the news and you look around you at the trials people are going through, perhaps trials you're going through yourself, you might feel like that, like 2020 is this giant hornet's nest of a pinata that someone is whacking with a huge stick in your living room. In all of that, I mentioned by way of introduction to introduce the theme that Pastor Chris asked me to preach about, namely how Christians find joy in the gospel while we live in a broken world and a world that's not just broken out there somewhere, although that's true, but when the broken world is here inside us as well. Romans 8 speaks to people who live where we live. Speaks to the kinds of people we are. Romans 8 speaks to the kinds of trials we're going through. Romans 8 calls us to behold the deeper joy and the more gritty triumph of Jesus, which is a joy and triumph that will sustain the children of God in a world long in sin and error and pining. As the Christmas hymn sings for the second advent of Jesus. All in all these things, Paul writes later in the chapter, we are more than conquerors through Jesus who loved us, verse 37. The these things that Paul has in mind that we are more than triumphant over include tribulation and famine, distress and danger, verse 35. But Romans doesn't open there. Romans 8 doesn't open there. Romans 8 opens with 11 verses exalting the gospel of free, undeserved grace that Christians have through the person and work of Jesus. So the opening verse in Romans 8 goes like this. Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The key phrase there being in Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Notice that phrase in Christ. Paul is writing to say that everyone who is in Christ has no condemnation from God. Not that we don't deserve condemnation from God because of our sin, but that we have no condemnation from God because God sent His Son, Jesus, into the world to take our condemnation, to take away a Christian's condemnation from him or her. Last year, one of our other pastors, in fact, Ben, who you can't see, who's back there behind the computer, uh, preached those 11 verses of Romans 8. And I'll tell you, just sitting in the congregation, listening to him preach, it was like um, all the blessings that come from God to his people in the gospel, it was like there was a huge sack filled with those blessings, and it was like Ben had turned that sack of blessings upon our heads upside down and just shook them for 35 minutes, the glories of the gospel. It was wonderful. But then the question begins to rumble, sort of at the end of that passage and certainly into this one What now? If God has taken away all of our condemnation and all of our corruption through Jesus and we are in Christ, do we have anything to do? Like, do we have anything to do now? The passage I read this morning, which for us is an afternoon on a Monday, answers the question What now? Because of the gospel reality that we are in union with Jesus and thus have no condemnation, in the power of the Spirit of God, Christians now begin to put to death our sin. And as we do that, we get joy. Lots and lots and lots of it. Look again with me at the words at the beginning of the passage. I'm going to read verses 12, 13, and 14 again. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We'll pick up more in just a minute. But Paul begins with a so then Verse 12, in light of all the treasures of heaven promised to us in the gospel, what are we to do? Again, the answer comes, we are to put our sin to death in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul proclaims that because Jesus has freed us from the prison of sin, we do not need to stay in prison any longer. Jesus has thrown open the prison doors and so we can walk out of prison you don't have to stay in bondage. In fact, you can't. You shouldn't. That's what Paul is saying. And he uses violent language to communicate this. For if you live according to the flesh, he writes in verse 13, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's a violent language. A pastor in the 17th century, perhaps you've heard of him, John Owen wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. Maybe a few of you have read it. I read it years ago and reread it just, I think, last year or the year before. So more recently. And there's a famous line in that book that says, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Jesus spoke often of this type of violence against our own sin the war of the Christian life, the be-killing sin part of Christianity. I'll give you just one example from the Gospel of Matthew. We could draw from many, but this is a more familiar one. Jesus here is going to use deliberate overstatement, I think, to make his point more clear. But Matthew chapter 5, reading verse 27 through 30, Jesus says this, You've heard it and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Notice that the point of Jesus's words in Matthew 5 and the words of Paul in Romans 8, do not command us to go on a sin diet as though we should just eat less and less sin. And then occasionally if we have some cheat meals, that's no big deal. That's not what... Paul or Jesus is talking about God commands us to starve sin not diet from it Christians don't sink to limit our sin but we do whatever we can to eliminate our sin and the word our in the phrase our sin is key Christian be far more concerned about your greed than what is sometimes called corporate greed be far more concerned about the sex viewed on your smartphone than the sex filmed in our Hollywood be far more concerned about the health of your marriage than the cheapening of marriage by any government God's view of sin is of something dangerous something that robs us of joy And God of his glory. We don't usually have that view of sin. Far too often sin to us is something we can laugh at. And coddle. As much as we talk about authenticity and transparency and brokenness. Let us be a people who show one another how much we hate our sin. By the war we make against it. When Paul uses the word flesh here, he he doesn't mean skin and meat and bones, but, but he's talking about that part of our nature that still is opposed to God. The flesh is at war with God, we read in verse 7 of Romans 8. And by the power of the Spirit, Paul tells us to slay our sin. And don't miss that connection with the Spirit Romans 8 teaches that the Spirit of God in the life of the believer can do more than one thing at a time, more than simply telling us that God loves us. He's going to do that later, and we'll come to that in just a moment. So yes, the Spirit of God works in the Christian to remind us of all the good things we have in the gospel, forgiveness, reconciliation, adoption. But the Spirit also points out the sinful places in your life that need to die. It's not about having some minimum level of holiness that if we just achieve some level of holiness, well, then God will love you. Look, God always loves his children just as a good father would always love his children. But to sit at the dinner table and have fellowship with joy, my children can't be cursing me when they think I'm not watching or listening. And we need to point out this as well. The way Satan points out your sin and the way the Spirit of God points out your sin, utterly different, utterly different. I heard a preacher put it like this once, that the condemnation of Satan is ambiguous and it's broad and it's hopeless. Whereas the conviction brought by the Spirit is focused and narrow and hopeful. Satan tells you, you're a loser. And that is broad and ambiguous and hopeless. But that's not how the Spirit of God works. If you were to take your finger and just press it into your shoulder... Not hard at first, but just increasing slowly in pressure. Now, I have a spot here where there was a tendon reconnected. And if I put my finger there still, 11 months after the surgery, I can still feel it very acutely. Perhaps if you're sitting with someone and you know them well enough, you can uh, give them the joy of pressing your finger into their shoulder instead. But if you press your finger into your shoulder slowly at first with more increasing pressure, that's like the spirit's conviction that he brings in the life of the believer he pokes asking do you feel that what about this this particular thing needs to go let me help you he says i'll illustrate again in another way What's happening here in Romans 1 through 11 and also 12 through 17. Let's say you lived in an apartment complex. Maybe some of you do. And a lousy, evil landlord runs the apartment complex. At first, when you moved in, you didn't know he was evil because he promised you a great place to live. But now that you've moved in, things begin to change. Your rent doubles. Your heat stops working. Your bathroom plumbing breaks. Your electricity cuts in and out. Rats seem to scurry around the complex at night. And you say, Mr. Landlord, you promised this and you promised that. And now it's different. I want you to fix it. And you would be right to do that, to say those things. And he says back to you, tough. And every month he proceeds to pound on your door, demanding his rent, oppressing. You can't leave, you're, you're captive. He took an exorbitant down payment, a monthly deposit of months and months of rent, and you can't leave, you're held captive. But then one day, a new homeowner or its new buyer buys up the apartment complex and he himself becomes the landlord and he takes this evil lousy landlord and he throws them off the property and he begins to fix the plumbing and evict the rats and restore everything to its proper place and thankfulness wells up inside you however after the initial euphoria is gone the old landlord keeps coming around He keeps walking around with his clipboard, pounding on apartment complex doors, and demanding that you pay your rent. Pay up, he says. Your rent is due. You're mine. You're a debtor to me. Now, what do you say? You say, no, Mr. Evil Landlord. I have a new landlord who is kind and wise and powerful and loving. And just as he has thrown you off before, so now he will throw you off again every time I ask him for help because he's the great liberator. Security, show this man the door. That's what you say or something like that. That theme illustrates or this, what I'm trying to do is illustrate what takes place there in Romans 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But as Romans 8 continues, it begins and we move into what is called our passage, even there at the end of 9, 10, 11, and 12. But certainly as you get into 12, we begin to develop another theme we're pressed with the question why we would vandalize newly renovated property and why we are not content with the apartment he gave us and why we get so angry with the other tenants who are all by the way recipients of grace. So church, I ask you here from a few oceans between us and many, many miles, and maybe that can make me more bold than I might be in person. But I want to ask you, church, what in your life needs to die? If that sounds hard to you to hear, it should. But don't miss the promise. Look again at verses 13 and 14. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The logic there in verse 14 is important. As you kill your sin, you don't earn your sonship. You display it. In passing, before going to the next point, let me mention something about the word sons in the phrase sons of God. Later in the passage, which I'll read in a moment, Paul uses the more general children of God, but here he uses sons of God. Now, those who are coming perhaps with a more Critical approach to the Bible, maybe, maybe that 's you, maybe that 's how you were brought up, and you hear this language of sons of God uh, and, and it feels like to you this this crust of, of a patriarchal influence on the Bible, so this kind of male dominant culture and, and it 's this part of the Bible that perhaps we should move on. let, let, let me just say a word to you very, very briefly, um, because the exact opposite is actually happening here in this passage. In the first century, a son would inherit the full and biggest blessing from the Father. So if Paul had spoken here of daughters of God, many would have gone, well, that's great, Paul, but daughters don't get it all. And that's why Paul says sons of God. It's not to slight what it means to be a daughter of God, but it is to say that if you are a child of God, whether son or daughter, you get the full inheritance from the father. Paul speaks of sons of God to celebrate the beautiful reality that adoption into God's family, namely, Whether you are a son or a daughter, you have equal standing in God's house. All the children are sons, even when they're daughters. Speaking of things that are hopeful, look with me at what we read here in verses 15, 16, and 17. Paul writes, For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. The word Abba there denotes tenderness and intimacy. I don't think pastors have been wrong with equating Abba with our more colloquial, I guess, folksy daddy. Maybe it could be overdone, but I do think there's something helpful there. One pastor said, I I don't feel respected if my children call me Dr. Ortland, <laughs> I feel put off, he said. In the same way, my children don't call me Reverend Verbicek, they call me Daddy. I have six of them. The oldest one doesn't often call me Daddy anymore, but the younger ones sometimes still do. In the Gospels, we read of Jesus one time, just one time, speaking of his father as Abba Father. And I wonder if you know the context of that occurrence when Jesus refers to his heavenly father as Abba father. I want, to, I want to read it for you now. It comes from Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 36. We read this, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. That's Jesus and the disciples. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. So he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. The word Abba squeezed out of Jesus during his greatest moments of suffering. Think about that. When our Savior suffered, that's when he cries, Daddy. That context should inform what we read here in Romans 8. I I don't know if this is true fully in your context there, but in America, in our context, many Christians have the assumption, and sometimes I can feel this assumption in my own heart rise up, that we know our sonship best when we feel the most blessed. But that's not what this passage says. I'll Put it like this. We often assume that as we stand in some alpine meadow with the breeze on us and the sun shining and our bellies full. We strong and confidently cry out, I am a child of God. We're joyful and triumphant. But this cry here of Abba Father is more like the helpless cry of a scared child in the dark who rather than just giving up or trying to just find and find and find a way out on his own, rather than doing either of those in pain and despair, rather than giving up, he cries out instinctively, Daddy, Daddy, are you there? That instinctive cry for dad is not actually, according to this passage, an instinct that rises up naturally within us. But the work of the Spirit within the child of God. This is the deeper joy and the more gritty triumph of Romans 8. Years ago, when I first received my Driver's license, maybe almost 23 years ago now. um, I was in high school, and I'll just go ahead and admit it. (laughs) I was a lousy driver. Uh, I was the oldest of uh, my brothers and sisters. I was responsible in other ways. My parents thought, he's pretty responsible. We don't have to do a whole lot of practice. I'm not blaming it on them. I was the one (laughs) who got double digit accidents. In my first year or two of driving. You heard that right. Yes. So more than nine accidents. Um, It hurts to admit it now. Um, Most of them were at very low speeds in parking lots. Um, One was not, however. It was an early Saturday morning in the spring. And the roads were wet. And uh, before you exit the highway near my high school. Uh, which is where I was going, you round this um, huge curve and then you go down a hill and then up a hill and then you exit and then you're almost there at the high school. And as I'm going around up this hill and around this corner on the wet road, uh, my highway, my minivan, uh, the back end of my minivan slipped out and fishtailed. Uh, And the front end of my car twice, and then along the side of the van, scraped the guardrail, and then I pulled off or slid off into the grass median, we would call it here, um, or the edge of the highway. I guess it wasn't in the middle, it was off on the right side. And I got out um, and walked around and looked at my car, and uh, the light bulb, the headlight, on the passenger side, was dangling out like this detached eyeball. And it looked like on the side of the van, as I walked around that, someone had taken a knife and just stuck it in and slashed down the side of my very old and now very beat up minivan that I had in high school. And so I got back in, drove up to the exit, rounded the corner, and headed off the two minutes it took to get to the high school parking lot. And I parked as far away as I could. And I got my things and I walked through the high school parking lot over to the locker room. I was there to catch the bus to go to a track and field meet on this Saturday morning. And I remember staring at the red brick wall of the locker room as I took the phone off the wall. We didn't have cell phones. We just took the phone off the wall. It was a phone with a cord. They had those then. Um, And took it off and I'm staring at the wall. And I remember wondering, what's my dad going to say to me? I said, Dad, I'm, I messed up. Again. And, and told him what happened. And his first words were not. You stupid son. How many times have I told you? Instead, he just said, "Are are you okay? You okay? You can't manipulate impulses. They sort of just get squeezed out of you." And when I whispered, "Daddy, love and care and concern," squeezed out of my father, told me to get on the bus and we'd deal with it later. And so I did. And As the bus made its way off the campus, the high school campus, um, we drove by my minivan. I didn't know they were going to do that. (laughs) The whole bus laughed at me. But I knew my dad loved me. In the last verses in the passage, Paul writes, 16 and 17, again, one last time The Spirit Himself bears witness. With our spirit. That we are children of God. And if children. Comma. Then heirs. Heirs of God. And fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him. In order that we may. Also be glorified with him. If children. Then heirs. The connection is that close. Paul says. I don't know what suffering you're experiencing. I don't know if you're in high school and everyone is laughing at you. I don't know if you're slaying your sin and it's more difficult than you ever could have imagined. I don't know how the COVID lockdowns have derailed your business, your church, perhaps killed ones you love. But I do know that if you are a child, then you're an heir. His inheritance becomes your inheritance. All the good that was stored up for Christ is ours, sprinkled on us in this life and poured on us lavishly in the life to come. If you are a child, you have a full inheritance coming. And now in this life, even now, you can call God Abba Father whenever you need him. This is how a Christian, this is how you and I can rejoice when all around our soul gives way. I invite you to pray with me. It was good to meet you. (laughs) I'd love to be invited there someday in person. Uh, My wife would like that. (laughs) And I would like it too. Uh, Blessings to you. Would you pray with me one more time? Heavenly Father, as I prayed a few moments ago, I pray now even after the preaching of the word and as uh, your people head out into their week's and churches dismissed. That you would blow the way. The dark clouds. And we would see. The beauty of our sonship. Of the joy of being called a child of God. And Lord so I pray for my friends removed. Um, many miles and a few oceans away. That you would encourage their hearts. And if there are are difficult things that lie ahead, if there are difficult conversations, sins that need to be forsaken or forgiveness that needs to be asked for, I pray that you give them the courage and the grace and the power of your spirit to walk with you as your children. We pray all these things in God's precious name of his Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.